Uh, fun fact, this is our first topical series, and uh, I won't be like your typical topical, topical series, I promise. But we thought it was best that during this time when the church is scattered or even feels exiled and people are asking real questions about uh, what they believe or what they assume about the local church. And hopefully we're examining ourselves and how we view the church. And what we wanted to do as elders is we wanted to examine what Scripture says about the church and where we are to take our marching orders from. Because I think there's a temptation when the winds of the, the climate of the culture changes that we are tempted to shift with it or respond to it or make the Bible subject to it. But that is never the case. And so we're going to look at the nature of the church as a whole, the church's purpose, our identity, but also our practice, what we do with that. And so this passage this morning is is perfect for that. And so what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, uh, even though we are not seeing each other face to face as a family, we're going to be having family discussions. Who are we as a church family? And so I would challenge you. This is a good time to ask questions. If you have questions, Ask the, the elders, let us know. Deshaun, Jesse, and I would love to talk to you. Um, but I think it's important, too, that we take account of ourselves. You know, do you understand the nature of the church, the purpose of the church, the practice of the church? Does your identity come out of that, or is church just another thing on your list? And so what we're going to also do this morning is we're going to talk about the elephant in the room, the thing that everyone is talking about. What do we do when the church doesn't meet? What do we do when the church is not in the same room together? And so Hebrews text is the main text where we get that expectation. In this text, I've used many times for people who would consider themselves Christians, but do not like the local church or do not think that they need to gather with other believers and have made a habit of neglecting the local meeting of the saints and joining the body of Christ. But it is first and foremost important that we look at this text in its context. Because if we look at where it sits in the book and the verses around it, it gives us insight into why the church is commanded to meet. And why what we do comes first and foremost out of who we are. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the context. We're going to exegete this passage as we always will. And this is meant to be an encouragement and an exhortation to the church. This is meant to be a, a rallying cry, a great blessing to the church to know what we have in Christ. And then once we do that, then we will deal with the issue of gathering in our modern time head on. So if you open your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're doing that, I want to give you some context of where we are. So the book of Hebrews shows us how All of the shadows in the Old Testament, the things that were a glimmer of heavenly things, find their fullness in Christ. And especially in 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10, we see the covenant that that was accomplished by Christ's sacrifice and what that final sacrifice for sins really means. And so that, what's going on in 9 and 10, Christ's sacrifice and the new covenant in his blood, is that's what sets up the identity and the purpose of the church. And so this is a transition within the book from the indicative section that tells us who Christ is and what he has done to the imperative section, what we are to do with it, the challenge and exhortation to the church, much like many of the writings in the New Testament and scripture in general starts with solid doctrine, orthodoxy, and then continues with solid practice. And we're in that transition section from what Christ has done to what we do. 
And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 and read through verse 25. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, so often we forget the fact that we can even pray is only possible because we have a high priest who intercedes for us. A high priest who has opened up communication from a sinful sinful people to a holy God through his propitiation, through his reconciliation, through his uniting. We can come before you confidently, boldly before your throne of grace because of your grace and mercy that you've shown us through your son. How incredible it is that we can pray, that we can talk to you, that we can open our mouths and you hear us and you respond. How amazing it is that you wrote down your will for us, that we would, that we would read it and respond. Lord, I pray for your church during this time. I pray that your people would be encouraged in you, founded in you, bold and firm in you. Pray that your word would encourage us and challenge us, that we would examine ourselves, that we would draw near to you and not draw away. We would hold fast to our confession and we would stir one another up to love and good deeds so that you would be glorified in everything we say and do. Lord, we praise you as the God who saves sinners. We praise you as the God who unites us to yourself and to one another. Thank you for adopting us into your family, that we might be your body, your bride, for the praise of your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I outlined this morning. Like I said, we're transitioning from the indicative to the imperative. Our first couple verses uh, what Christ has done, verses 19 through 21. Then out of that, what we are to do out of what Christ has done, verse 23 to 25. And you're going to see in there three commands. Let us, let us, let us. And we'll handle each one of those. And then in our application, we're going to spend the latter half of our sermon dealing with what this means for us today, but only out of the proper context of this passage. So let's begin. Verse 19 Therefore, brothers, in the Greek, this is literally therefore having, meaning whenever we see therefore, we look back to what came before it, but there's a possession here. Therefore, we possess because we possess everything that came before. Now, I told you it was in chapter nine and chapter 10 and really the entire book of Hebrews of what we have in Christ. But I want you to see the first few verses before 19. 
Picking up in verse 15. This is a work of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father through the power of the Spirit. Chapter 10, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bearing witness to us. This is a work of our triune God saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, having. Therefore, we now are members of this covenant in Christ. We now have forgiven sins. We have God's word written on our hearts. It is ours in Christ. Therefore, since we possess that, since that is ours, and he continues with what we have in Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since this explains our standing, we're in the, the, the new covenant in Christ, our demeanor we can approach with confidence and our access, our standing, our demeanor, and our access. Our standing, we are new in Christ Jesus. Our demeanor, we have confidence in him. and our access, we can draw near to the holy places of God. We have confidence to enter a place that only the high priest could. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. And so to Western Gentiles, this doesn't have a lot of meaning. But if you grew up in Israel, if you were a Jew... And you knew that only one man on one day every year could enter the holy places. And now through Jesus Christ, you, not a priest, not even a high priest, but you, a regular sinner, because of Jesus Christ, can now enter the holy place. Where the very presence of God dwells and do it confidently. This changes everything. Gives you direct access to the holiness of God. And how does that happen? By the blood of Jesus. This is what is accomplished in the new covenant. This is what makes it better than the old covenant. Because as the writer of Hebrews tells us, in the old covenant, it's the blood of bulls and goats. But in the new covenant, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. It gives us access to the holiness of God. There is no more confident standing in all the world to say that because of Jesus Christ, you now have confidence Approach the holiness of God. Don't sell ourselves short as who we are in the church. So he continues. The holy places, and if you've studied your old, your old testament, you've seen a lot of those visual graphs when you were a kid in church, you know the different divisions in the temple, the outer courts, the inner courts, and, and then the, the, the holy of holies, the most holy place. And there was a curtain that divided the holy place and the most holy place. And that curtain was very symbolic because that's what separated the sinful man from a holy God. And the priests had to cleanse themselves before they could even walk in the presence of the holy place, let alone the holy of holies. And they would tie a rope around the priest's waist because if he didn't cleanse himself correctly, if there was one spot on his body that had not been washed, he would die and they would need the rope to pull him back out because anyone else who would go in to him would die. But that same curtain that would separate man from God Look how it's described in verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. I mean, this is the Wizard of Oz times a thousand. The man behind the curtain really is who he says he is. And now that curtain has been opened up for us. 
what separates the holy from the unholy. Now through Christ, we have been declared holy and made holy in his sight. But look at what he equates with that curtain. The new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain. That is his flesh. His flesh on the cross. And we know when he died and it seemed like his body was 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 completely useless and it seemed torn and undone. He breathed his last and the tor- in the in the temple veil. The curtain was torn from top to bottom, showing that only God could have made that split. But in fact, it was the figurative tearing of his body that tore this dividing line between God and his people. It was his sacrifice. It was his perfect atonement, the final sacrifice for sin that inaugurated the new covenant that brought us in. This is deep, rich theology, and this is who we are as the church. Because if we just make the church about coming and showing up and wearing our our Sunday best and singing songs and going throughout the rest of the week being heathens, you're missing the point and you're not the church. This is who the church is. This is who... Christ died for. This is what Christ went through and accomplished so that we could be the church. This is why it's meant to be an encouragement. Because this is who we are in him. And as you're going to see in these verses, that this is a new and living way. Our resurrected Christ is still keeping that division that was closed before open. There is a new and living way because our God is alive. He is living. And if you see in these verses, we get his blood in verse 19 and his flesh in verse 20. It shows us what this sacrifice truly accomplished because every sacrifice for sin required flesh. Something living must die. Blood must be shed. Our living Savior died. His blood was shed. But through his living way, the curtain is opened and the barrier removed. And now, since he is the holiness of God and stands in the presence of God, we are united to him. We can stand before the presence of a holy God. When we think about the flesh and blood of Christ, this is what communion symbolizes. When we approach his table, we know that his blood was the final sacrifice. His blood gives us confidence. His flesh gives us entrance. And so when we partake as the church, we have confidence before God because of the finished work of Christ. We have entrance to the table of God in his very presence. Do not take it lightly when we come back together and we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we say his flesh has given me entrance to the presence of God. His blood has covered my sins. So I have his righteousness. This is who we are as a church. And his argument is not over. Verse 21, and since. Since we have confidence because of Christ, and since Christ, who entered into the holy place, is also our great priest over the house of God, he continues to strengthen his case. We have a great high priest. Again, if you live in America, you don't know what it means to have a high priest. But if you lived in Israel, and you knew that the, the high priest was the most holy position in the entire nation. It was a great honor. But each of those priests died. Each of those priests would make sacrifices and sin and have to 
atone for their own sins and cleanse themselves. But our great high priest has never sinned. The book of Hebrews lays all this out and wish we could go through all of it. But if you look in chapter four, he's tempted in every way, yet without sin, our high priest intercedes for us, goes before the throne of grace. I love what chapter seven says about this. Chapter seven talks about the nature of this covenant being better and why this covenant is better. Picking up in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Being a high priest is a great job until you die. Then there's another high priest. Our high priest is alive and he will never die. But he, verse 24, speaking of Christ, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. If you, draw, if you are in Christ, he makes it possible for us to draw near to Christ and always makes intercession. How can we even pray? How can we even go before a holy God? Because he intercedes for us. Our high priest is the holiness of God. And he is our head over the church. Because he is holy and we are united to him. He died so that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. Not in our own holiness, but his given to us. So this is where chapter 7 connects chapter 10. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, back in chapter 7, 25, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this begins a series of commands, the first being drawn near. We're going to see three commands, all beginning with let us in verse 22, 23, and 24. These three commands, they address the heart, the mind, and the actions in that order. And so within the church, it addresses our corporate affections, our confession, and our operation, what we do. The affection, the confession, and the operation of the church. Number one, let us draw near. Because we are promised, because it is a new covenant in his blood, because he is our high priest. When we draw near, he is able to save us to the utmost. That means nothing you do. No sin that you can commit is beyond his grace. To the utmost, he saves completely. So we're going to walk through each of these commands. These are the imperatives out of the indicative of the book of Hebrews. The command for us to respond to what Christ has done for us. Draw near. This is no longer in the sense of Israel who had to travel all the way to Jerusalem and to come close to the tabernacle and to the temple so that they could have any hope of being near the presence of God. But through Jesus Christ, he opened up the curtain. And now we can draw near in a spiritual sense. Jesus told us there is a day and it is now when those will worship in spirit and truth. And that is us. We are the church wherever we sit. If Jesus Christ has died for us, if our faith is in him, if his spirit resides in us, we worship him in spirit, truth. And you can draw near wherever you are. This is a beautiful encouragement. This is how we can pray because of our high priest, because of our new covenant, because he intercedes for us. We're commanded to have intimacy with our God. Draw near. And this is 
a great exhortation in this day because we're social distancing and we're separated from one another. Many of you are spiritually distancing. Many of you are checking out and you are drawing further and further away from the Lord. And you are being robbed. Your soul is starving. Draw near in this time and in all times, but especially when you do not see your brothers and sisters face to face who remind you to draw near. Because in order for us to draw near, we must understand and be reminded of Christ's work accomplished for us. And what it means, the purpose of the entire book of Hebrews, what we have in Christ and what we are to do with it. And it must begin, as the writer says here, in the heart and with full assurance of faith. Let us draw near with a true heart. Any true corporate fellowship must begin in the heart of each person. We cannot come together as the body and have true fellowship without hearts that are changed and transformed and drawing near to the Lord. And when we come together, it is so much greater. But first, there must be a call, a realization and self-examination before there can be any corporate actualization. Yes, there must be a realization and self-examination before there can be any corporate actualization. What does that mean? You must realize yourself. You must examine yourself so that when we come together, all of us are drawing near to God. And then as we corporately draw together near to God individually, we strengthen the body. But if we just go through the motions, you go about your week and forget you show up on Sunday morning, check your box off. None of us are better off. But if we're all drawing near to God, if we're all examining ourselves, our corporate strength will be that much stronger. But we must do it with a, with a true heart. And we know that we didn't bring ourselves into this world the first time. We didn't have anything to do with our first birth and we don't have anything to do with our second birth. But we know that we need a new heart because our heart of stone is dead. So how do we get this true heart? Look at what the writer says. In full assurance of faith with our hearts, mentioned twice for emphasis here, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So it's sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. So what is it speaking of? So again, if you're not a Jew, this, uh, this symbolism sounds good, but it's even greater if you understand the temple processes. Sprinkled clean. This is what the high priest would do. The high priest on the day of atonement would go in and sprinkle blood on the altar, which would atone for all the sins of all of Israel, including their own. This is speaking of an internal transformation. If you have a true heart because Jesus Christ atoned for your sin and he sprinkled it clean, he, your high priest, put the final blood sacrifice on your heart that you could have a true heart. The high priest also had to wash themselves and cleanse themselves to make sure they were even able to approach the throne. There was, this, there was a cleansing process that the Jews went through. Baptism didn't begin in the New Testament. There were ritual washings that happened often. So we've got the internal sprinkling of the heart, one analogy. The external washing of the body, another analogy. This complete immersion, this complete covering of pure water that you have been washed your entire body, nothing is lacking. No rope around your waist needed to pull you out in case there's a forgotten sin because Jesus Christ has pure water and he has covered you. This is who we are as the church. 
In communion, we see his flesh and blood. And in baptism, we see this covering of pure water, being able to stand in his presence with confidence, with true hearts because of what he has done. It's our first command. Let that sink in for a moment. There's two more like it. Number two, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So when we speak of our hearts, we speak of our affections, our desires, our motivations. When we speak of our confession, we speak of our minds. The word confession in the Greek, it means same words. We confess together with one another the same words, the same right doctrine. We hold true to the words of our God. We hold to the same gospel. That's what unites us. True hearts of worshipers. True minds renewed by the word of God. And let us hold fast to it. So vital in this time. Hold fast to the word of God. If you are scared, if you feel like the world is out of control and you are out of hope, I guarantee you, you are not in your word enough or not at all. Hold fast to your confession. When the world makes no sense, when your life is falling apart, hold fast to the word of God. That is where we get our reminder of our confidence, a reminder of the work of Christ. And this is as your pastor. Any one of you who comes to me and you know this, this is going on in my life. This is going on in my life. I'm scared about this. I'm worried about this. Are you reading your Bible? What are you reading right now in your Bible? Well, I haven't read in a while. There's your problem. Read your Bible and come back to me. This is true. We must hold fast to our confession. Why? That is our hope. So many people are putting their hope in other things. You cannot find your hope anywhere else except for in the word of God and the promises of God. Because it points us to the only one who is worthy of our hope. But so many of you, especially in this time when the church is scattered, are putting your hope in other things. Thinking the news is going to comfort you. Thinking a face mask is going to comfort you. You have no hope in earthly things. Our hope is in our confession and the things that we hold together. And we as the church encourage one another in that. Why? Why is our hope in a confession? Because of who we confess, because our hope is in a person. Without wavering, we won't waver if we know that for he who promised is faithful. This connects us to where we finished in the Psalms. Our God is forever faithful. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if we hold fast to them, we will be unwavering. If we hold to our confession and confess them with our mouths, the church will be encouraged and the church will be strengthened. That is who we are to be. These commands give God glory, but they give the church encouragement. Draw near to him. Hold fast to his confession, to his, to our confession of who he is. Dealing with the heart, dealing with the mind. Number three. Verse 24, and let us, third command here, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Begins with the affections. Kind of reminds us of tell. Teach truth, exalt Christ, love the Lord. Begins with truth and the affections are stirred and then it gets into actions. Here's how the church responds. 
The first two are individual. We draw near to God. We hold fast to his confession. And it does not stay there. And let us continue how to stir one another up to love and good works. This is the church. There is no such thing as individual Christianity in the church. If you say I can be a Christian without the church, you are a liar. You cannot do this because we need each other. We need to stir one another up to love and good works. Three commands. Consider on this third one. The first two seem obvious, but consider you should put a lot of thought into this. And I love those of you who have the gift of encouragement. And stirring one another up. We should consider how can I encourage my brother? How can I encourage my sister? We should give serious thought to these because this is a practical outpouring of what has gone on in our hearts. The transformation that makes us new and the renewal of our minds that understands what we have in Christ, what we have together. Stir one another up to love and good works. This is what we want to see in ourselves, what we want to see in our brothers and sisters. This is what we want to be known for, right? When people visit our churches, when they come and see us. These are loving people. They love one another. These are kind and caring people. They do good things. They serve one another. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another and your obedience to my commands. Love and good works. This is nothing new. It's just expanding on what Jesus taught us in his ministry. Our affections drawing near to God. Our minds holding fast to our convictions and our actions that stir up in one another. Three commands, draw near, hold fast, stir up. Did you notice what is laid out in these? Faith, hope, and love built right in. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith in our hearts. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works. This is a complete package on the church. We've got communion. We've got baptism. We've got faith, hope, and love. We've got our affections. We've got our mind. We've got our actions. Our love for Christ and the love of Christ shown to us does not stop with us. Our faith is not just our own. Our hope is not just our own. We share it with our brothers and sisters. This is why the church is needed. And how do we make sure that we stir one another up to love and good works? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. This is it. Why do we come to church? Because if our hearts are drawn near to the Lord, if we are holding fast to our confessions, then we cannot help but stir one another up to love and good works. The others you can do on your own, but this you cannot. And if you are not, if you are neglecting the body, and if you are not coming together to meet, you're being disobedient because you are not stirring your brother and sister up to love and good works. So let's break down verse 25 and then what that means for us. Not neglecting, and this neglecting, it's pretty straightforward, forsaking, abandoning, uh, to meet together, exactly what it means. The assembly, the meeting, the gathering. Um, but we have to take it in its context. It supports everything else before. The meeting is not the purpose of this passage. 
It's just the example of how you stir one another up to love and good works. The purpose is what we have in Christ and what we are to do with it. And that is worked out through the meeting of the body. And so let's dig a little bit further. Why is this command needed? Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Habit. This word in the Greek, custom practice. Something that you do continually that begins to define you. And how do we know that? It's the Greek word ethos. Now, if you know anything about philosophy, you know ethos, pathos, and logos. The three philosophical ways that the Greeks would debate. Pathos is a making an emotional, affectionate appeal. Logos is making a rational, reasoned appeal. And ethos is making a, an appeal from your reliability or your credibility. So what do these words have to do to get do with one another? Anything that becomes a habit, and the word ethos is the basis for our ethics, anything that is a habit in your life will affect your credibility. What you do habitually will make people think that you are reliable or unreliable, that you are credible or uncredible. And if you call yourself a Christian, you do not desire and regularly meet with the body of Christ. You do not have credibility and you have a habit of neglecting. And I've met many believers who, who hold to this. So this is a challenge because this is where our actions are worked out. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but what happens when we come together encouraging one another? This is one of the most important and most unsung gifts within the church, and that is encouragement. Some of you say, I don't, I can't sing, I can't teach, you know, I can barely shake someone's hand without stumbling over my words. If you can encourage someone, it's one of the best things you can do for the body. If you can walk alongside your brother and sister who is struggling and encourage them in the gospel and tell them of who they are in Christ, you have just made their day and you have strengthened the body. It is such a good thing. That is why we come together. Stir one another on to love and good works and encourage one another in the process. We need to be like the seven dwarfs. You know, hi-ho, we're just whistling as we work. We're encouraging one another because we love what Christ has done in us and we love one another so well. We are to be happy, joyful people who encourage one another. And how long do we do it? All the more as you see the day drawing near. What's the day? The day of Christ's return. Every day you wake up, it is a day closer to Christ's returning. The day is drawing near. There's urgency here. What do we want to be found doing? Do we want to be found to be a, an, an isolated, grumpy church? Or do we want to be found to be loving, to be doing good works, to be encouraging one another because we are drawing near to Christ, because we hold fast to our confession. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 13. Kind of brings all this together in the practical side. Hebrews 3, 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. So when do we encourage each other? Well, whatever days are called today. Every day you wake up, it's today. That's the day that you encourage your brother. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is how we keep our brothers and sisters from sinning. We encourage each other. We remind each other of the gospel. And the church is needed to be involved in each other's lives. Here's what we 
challenge you a little bit. That can't just happen on Sunday morning. And if to you, church is just Sunday morning, you don't understand church either. We look at the pattern in Acts, the, the, the believers gathered every day. They were around each other. They couldn't get enough of each other because they know with the exhortation and the encouragement of believers, there's less temptation for sin. There's more purity and strength within the body. So this is an amazing passage. So much here that unpacks who we are as the church. And I've read this passage so many times. Who people who consider themselves Christians and think church is optional or don't gather or distant from other Christians. Who see church attendance is optional or church attendance is the maximum of what it means to be a Christian don't really think that true Christian fellowship is applicable to them. And so hopefully, by studying this, it's brought some clarity to you. It's been very helpful for me. So I want us to get the context because I want to deal with the question that everyone's asking. What does this mean for us today? I'm going to bring you into the conversation that this church is having and every church in the country is having. And there is this balance between our command to stir one another, one another up to love and good works by meeting together, but also the command that we see in Romans 13. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13 for me. And this is where the tension is. Because both of these passages are true. Both of these are the word of God. Both of these are expectations for the church. And uh, when I asked what you'd like to hear about when we have a church series, one of the thoughts was church and state. So the great question is, how do you balance what we're going to see in Romans 13 and being obedient to the authorities over you, but also being independent in the church that is not under government? Very carefully. That's, that's how you, you, you balance it, because both are true, and we, we want to make sure and the language here by Paul in Romans is explicit. Look at Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person. This is another command. For there is no authority except from God. And that politician you hate, God put him there. And those who exist have been instituted by God. Yep. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So as a church, we are commanded to encourage one another to meet but we're also called, commanded to submit to our authorities. Both are true. And depending on where you are on a spectrum, you're going to favor one over the other. And you're not going to understand people who stand on the other side. Let's be real, though. Some, some churches would stop preaching the gospel if the government told them not to. And some people will say, well, Paul doesn't know how faithful or unfaithful and reckless our government is. But when Paul was writing this, Nero was in power in Rome. Think the man who set his own city on fire and blamed all the Christians for it is a servant of God for God's good? 
Paul knew what he was doing. We are to be faithful in the church, but we are also to be good citizens. And this is what every church in the country is wrestling with. So just right up front, we're placed in an impossible situation. So if you're a member of this church or another church, speaking on behalf of the elders, give us some grace and patience, please. Because this is new territory for everyone. There is no perfect answer, yet many people feel strongly in one way or the other, and Christians are pointing fingers and accusing one another of something that there is no precedent for. Here's what we're, we're, we're facing. Here's the conversations we're having as elders and churches all around the country are having. We don't, we don't meet. Like we've chosen to do, we run the risk of depriving the saints and neglecting gathering. But if we do meet, we run the risk of infecting people and disobeying the authorities. What do you do? And if you're, and, and we find ourselves somewhere on some spectrum with two ends. And here's what I want to tell you. If you're watching this now, if you're on the other side of this, the church is important to you. And I'm glad that you're, you're here and I'm glad we're having this conversation. But there really is a, uh, a, a spectrum. On one end, there are people that the regular church gatherings are inhibited by, by a virus. Yours truly. There are many of us in this camp. We are upset. There are many people who may be upset with us or their pastors because we're not gathering. But I don't want you to forget the context of Hebrews 11. You must examine yourself in this because there are, there are three commands. All of them come out of, a heart, out of a true heart. And the gathering is not one of the commands. It's a subset of the command. So if you're upset about the church gathering in a local place, they ask you a question. Are you drawing near to the Lord? Are you seeking him in prayer? Is your heart growing in your affections toward the Lord this time or, or not? Are you holding fast to your confession? In this time when you're complaining about the church not meeting, are you in God's word? Are you holding fast to it? Are you going to it and running to God's word for encouragement and for your truth? Are you gathering with the church when we open the scriptures and when we proclaim the scriptures in a way that has consideration for the health of our body and our submission to authority? And here's the big one. Are you stirring your brothers and sisters up to love and good deeds? Because it's easy to say what we're neglecting to meet. But it also says right in that same passage, in the same verse, that the purpose of meeting is so we stir one another up to love, one another up to love and good deeds. Or you're just complaining and pointing fingers. Because you could spend this time encouraging your brothers, or you could spend this time lamenting because church looks different now than it did. But then there's the other side of the spectrum. Those are just checked out. That... You found it easier to sleep in, or just veg out and disconnect from the body, and don't think this is a big deal, or you actually think it's kind of nice. Like, hey, I don't have to go to church and no one's going to notice. In that case, you probably are not even bothered with Zoom, and I'm not talking to you right now. Uh, but if you're hearing me, and, and, and that's you, or if you know that, that person encourage them and challenge them with the same things. Because are you being disobedient? Are you guilty of not drawing near? Are you using this as an excuse to check out of your, your Christianity and check into Netflix for a while? Are you holding fast to God's word? Are you finding your sustenance in the living word of God and holding fast to your confession? Are you stirring your brothers and sisters up to love and good deeds? 
There is no excuse. We are more connected than anyone has ever been on the face of the planet. You have no shortage of opportunities to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So, he, so here's where we are. We're all somewhere in between. There are not many people on this end of the spectrum or this end of the spectrum. But in either case, we need to encourage each other because the day is drawing near. Christ is returning soon. Here's where I want to encourage you. If you see someone who is not connected, encourage them. Reach out to them. Open your member directory. You have it for a reason. If you are not connected, reach out. Get connected. Encourage one another. Stir your brothers and sisters up. And if people are reaching out to you, let them love on you. Let them encourage you. So here's my other challenge. This is not just Sundays. Again, if, any, if this should remind us of anything, the church is not just one day a week. We are the blood-bought body of Christ 24-7, 365. Amen. We are a living body. And so I want to challenge you when we come back together and we meet face to face, will you make the church a priority beyond Sunday morning? Will you make the church your, your, your primary identity before your job, before your, your, your politics or your activities? Will you be the living, breathing body of Christ seven days a week? And will you spur your brothers and sisters on to love and good deeds? Because you are first and foremost drawing near to the Lord. Because you have read your Bible and you are holding fast to the confession and the promises of God because he is faithful. We have to remember that this command to not neglect a meeting comes out of a heart issue. So those that don't meet are not, I guarantee, are not drawing near. Those that see it as, as optional. And those of you right now who are upset that we're not meeting, amen. Thank you. That should drive your, your, your desire to appreciate when we do meet. This is a gift from the Lord this time. This is going to be a reckoning and a purifying of the church. Because we're going to have to take account of ourselves. And I hope that during this time, it stirs your affections for the church and gives you a desire to be with your with your, your brothers and sisters. How much we need one another. And I hope that each of you examine yourself in this. But I want to close the way the writer of Hebrews has intended for this passage. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged of all the amazing things that we have in Jesus Christ. That through our faith in him, in the new covenant, in his blood, by his flesh given for you, what you have. Let's go through our passage one more time. We have confidence. We are able to enter the holy places because he has placed his blood on us. He has made a new and living way for us. He has opened up the curtain, the divide, the divide between holy God and sinful man through his flesh. He is our great high priest who always lives to intercede for us. He is the head of the house of God of which we are members. We can draw near to him with a true heart because he has sprinkled it with the blood 
his covenant. We can stand before him renewed and regenerated because he has washed us with pure water. We have a confession. We have promises of a faithful God. And we can stand unwavering in it because our God is unwavering. And we get to stir one another up to love and good works. We get to encourage each other. And we have the privilege of meeting together. And if the Lord has done all this to get his church to appreciate meeting together again, then praise God for that. We get to encourage one another and be encouraged by one another. And we get to be eager because any day our priest, our king, our prophet, our God, our savior is returning. The day is drawing near. This is why we meet. This is who we are in Christ. And I pray that when we do meet in person again, there will be renewed zeal among his people and everybody across the globe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. How often it refines and corrects and directs us. Lord, I pray that we would draw near to you, that our prayers would be fervent and passioned. Pray that we would hold fast to your word, that it would feed us daily. Pray that we would encourage and love one another well, that we would be known for our encouragement that we would be ready and sober-minded because we know your return is coming soon. Thank you for making us the church. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for your son who accomplished it and your spirit who sealed it. That you, our heavenly father, might be glorified. In the name of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we thank you. Amen.